sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Morning, Mike. Morning, Jay. How you doing? You know, I should have, I didn't have something prepared because I was going to, I'm running the show today, so I didn't, I didn't know I had to do that. So, well, that, that's, I didn't have my funny quip sort of that I'm trying to work on. You know, I, I, yeah, I can't say that I'm not disappointed, but I'm sure you'll have one next time. Next, next time I will. That's that. I'm going to hold it. Because I try, I want to make them topical. You know what I mean? Like I, I just, so I don't want to write down like, you know, a bunch of advance. It's a lot of pressure. It really is. But I know you're up to it anyway. uh, So since you are running the show, why don't you go ahead and, uh, uh, Let's start off. running. Yeah, let's yeah, do it. Um, well, the interesting thing that happened this week, uh, on Wednesday, Attorney General William Barr appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, to answer questions relating to his summary of the Mueller report and also his decisions uh, regarding uh, uh, not to uh, prosecute, I guess is the best word, um, uh, President Trump for obstruction of justice. Uh, and on Friday, he didn't appear before the House Judiciary Committee to ask sort of the same questions. Um, the difference being, well, one of the differences, and we'll talk about this, is that House Democrats were insisting uh, that they be allowed to have a staff person or a, an attorney uh, question the attorney general, um, which would be unusual, if, if not unprecedented. Uh, House Democrats are also demanding that Barr provide unrestricted access uh, to the unredacted report, uh, Mueller report. Uh, and uh, our, our uh, if he doesn't do so, uh, are going to hold him in contempt. Um, this is, of course, he, his uh, response, and it's a good one, I think, um, is that he's prohibited from doing that uh, by uh, the uh, grand jury rules. Um, and, and also, again, in, in this thing, which we'll talk about, which is sort of strange, um, Nancy Pelosi has accused Barr of lying to Congress, uh, noting that that is a crime. Uh, and there have been multiple calls for his resignation and or impeachment. Um, so with with all that, I guess, Mike, I'll, I'll ask your, your first question. You posted a little bit about this on, on Facebook last week. Um, the Senate testimony and the just this whole procedure of bringing in Barr to answer questions on a summary of a report that they now have. Um, what's what's your impression of of is this a a substantive uh, fact-finding uh, mission, or is this just sort of uh, politics? Well, I mean, obviously, it's largely politics. I mean, it, well, it seems there are a couple things going on here, it seems to me, and that it seems to me pretty clear that Bob Barr's main focus— Bob What? Sorry. is no. it, His main focus is to protect the president. I, I do agree with my my colleagues on the left who say that he's acting much more like the personal defense attorney of the president than he is as the attorney general. Now, well how how so exactly? Well, I think number 1, the very fact that he put out a summary report that was clearly a major exercise in spin to try to set the narrative. There was no no need to do that whatsoever. He could have just let the well, report no, no. speak I mean, for itself. Well, let me, were, were, were demanding the report. Well, the, the people demand a lot of things, but I think it was, you know, re, it would have been a reasonable thing to say. It's like, you know, this is 448 pages. I'm not going to try to summarize it. 
Therefore, I'll just let the report, I'll get the report out as quickly as I can and let it speak for itself. He chose not to do that. And I think he chose not to do that because he did want to, in fact, influence the narrative. Now, I want to say that I gave Barr the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I, you know, I think that's important that we should always start by assuming that people are acting in good faith. But, but really, what he's done to this point has convinced me otherwise. Um, and I guess it's not too surprising because when I think about it, what sort of person would take on the job of attorney general to a corrupt president who has no real respect for the rule of law? I mean, I almost give Jeff Sessions a pass or at least half a pass. And you know, I, you know how I feel about Jeff Sessions. Well, yeah, on, on policy. But okay, when he signed on, it was maybe less entirely clear how sort of deep the rot in Trump world went. Or at least maybe he could have convinced himself this way. But, but Barr knew exactly what he was getting into. And why would he get into it? Well, I, you know, I, I wanted to believe that he was a better person than, than he is, in part because of his kind of fairly good you know, establishment pedigree and so forth. But I believe he's proven that he's a, you know, he's in, he's a partisan hack interested in just protecting the president at, at all costs. And it's, it's really kind of sad, I think, because to this point, he had a really good reputation. And I think he's, he's just destroying it for this, for this reprehensible man. That's really too bad. Oh, well, I, I, I disagree um, on a whole lot of things. And, okay. And I guess my, my, my first of all is, is sort of take the Socratic approach and I'm I'm not still not saying what exactly has has uh, Barr done uh, that is in any way reprehensible. And and again, there's there are a lot of things that he's done that would seem to be at odds with an uh, a plan to just spin this. For example, he offered uh, the summary to Mueller to review before he released it, and Mueller said, "Well, no thanks." Um, I mean, that would that would seem to be if if he was going to misrepresent. Uh, conclusions, uh, which was what he's accused of doing, um, that would seem to be a strange thing to do. Uh, it would also be, if he was, he was going to misrepresent uh, what's in the report, uh, a strange thing to do to provide it with very limited redactions. And, uh, you know, uh, you know and, and within three weeks, I mean, I think which was the time frame he, he said he would provide it. Um, and I guess, uh, fourth, it's, I'm not sure what if any conclusions in the summary um, are, are incorrect, is anyone saying that that Barr's summary does not match up with what the Mueller report says? And you can say spin. Well, uh, maybe he should have spun it to be more um, uh, adverse to the president. Well, I, I suppose he could have. Um, but but to some extent, there's only so much you can do. Where uh, if the the special uh, counsel says. I, I find no grounds for for um, uh, any collusion uh, or or nothing that could could you know you prosecute or to go forward. There's only so much you can do, and and I would also think that when it comes to the obstruction, it would be I mean passing strange. It would be, it would be the most bizarre uh, an attorney general bringing charges, indicting uh, a sitting president, which has never been done and and is constitutionally probably can't be done. Um, based on a uh, non-finding, it's and I, and I guess I'm I'm still sort of at a loss of what this exercise is is over. In that, if if the Democrats have the report and they didn't like how how uh, Barr spun it, well, okay, I mean then they can spin it how they want. They've they've got it now. 
Well, sure. And in, in the sense, I, I, I agree with you in that. I don't think that I don't think that Barr did anything illegal. I don't I wouldn't even go so far as to agree with Speaker Pelosi that he lied to Congress. But I mean, I again, I think he's acting not as sort of a, a attorney general who's you know should be focused on the impartial administration of justice. He's acting as a defender of the president. And that's his that's his prerogative. So I think the only I mean, I, I find him not reprehensible. I, to be clear, I find Trump reprehensible, but Barr disappointing. And uh, maybe I was a little naive to expect, again, that he would be anything but disappointing, given the fact that he was willing to work for this reprehensible man. So that I just want to be clear on that. But and so, I mean, I don't expect anything substantive to come out of this. Uh, you know, I, I don't think he was a uh, chicken for not agreeing to talk to, uh, to to talk to the House. It just he wanted to he wanted to the terms of the engagement to be as favorable as possible. And certainly when a partisan on your side controls the gavel and controls the hearings, then uh, it's a lot more favorable to you. And he didn't want to go into a very kind of hostile environment. And, and that's, you know, that's his prerogative. And then Congress can, they can go ahead and take the next step and, you know, subpoena him. And there can potentially be contempt charges and that sort of thing if it gets to that point. But, you know, in the end, I mean, I think this is just part, and we'll talk about this maybe, if not later on in this show, at some point in the very near future, about just the general, I believe, uh, Trump administration's view that uh, Congress can be ignored as a co-equal branch of government and that their oversight, they can just kind of ignore their oversight authority and, and you know, then there aren't going to be any consequences. And I think I think that there are and there should be. Well, let me let me ask, ask you this, because... Um... First of all, I, w- I would say, I mean, you you would agree with me. Um, I, I don't think, I, at least I'm not aware of any historical example, where a cabinet member has been called before Congress to be questioned by yeah, there have um, been. A, a staff. There have okay, actually been a couple. Uh, there was, I think, one or two in the Nixon administration and one, I believe, in the Clinton administration. So it is unusual. But it Again, is I'm not... talking a cabinet level. Yeah. Yeah. Secretary of something. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it's so it is unusual, but it is not unprecedented. It it has happened with cabinet level officials at least twice. And I believe three times within within our lifetimes, at least, Jay. Okay, But it is unusual. So, you know, then I I guess I guess what I'm my question is, well, why would this fit into the unusual that unusual circumstance? Right. Why would you need a staff person uh, to, to, to to conduct the questioning when what you're complaining about is you didn't like the the summary of the report that you have, and you have the report now. Well, and I think I would disagree with the, or I would challenge this framing of the question. Congress, the, the congressional committees have the right to design questioning however they want. If they want to bring in you or me to ask questions for two hours to someone, they can set up the format that way. And it's and certainly the witness who the person who's being called, if it's voluntary, they are. They're free to say, no, I don't want to do that. And then Congress, again, is free to subpoena them and you know, so forth and so on. But this idea that the witness is the person who gets to decide the terms of the questioning is, is just completely wrongheaded and, and, and frankly no, no, ridiculous. I, I would say, no, it's not. I mean, if we're talking about co-equal branches, I, 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 would, I would disagree. I, I would think there ought to be some respect for a co-equal branch that you're not treating someone like a criminal defendant because you didn't like the summary. Well no, I mean you uh, don't you don't get to you don't get to tell Congress how it gets to do its oversight. That's what co-equal means. So in its own well, sphere, I'm, I'm, as I'm long as I'm, it's, I'm not sure what the, the oversight portion, I mean 
which article are you finding that in the Constitution that they can just call in? Uh, they have they have general oversight. Yeah, powers, and that's and, and there's subpoena powers, yeah, and but, there's plenty of and there's there's tons of Supreme Court precedent that says that congressional oversight is is extremely broad and it basically relates to anything that Congress can legislate or act on, which means that in this case, there's so much, for instance, they, uh, Congress can uh, investigate the president, can, has impeachment authority. And there's no, I mean, there's no legal question here. Congress can conduct oversight on just about anything. This squarely fits into that. So anyone who's arguing that this doesn't fit into that, I think that's just a, that's just a red herring. It's a non-issue. It's just, again, you know, Barr didn't want to be questioned in a hostile environment. And I get that, you know, but, uh, and so, and so I guess I'm not disagreeing with you in the sense on the substance. Yeah. Barr spun, and I think he shouldn't have spun this, but you're, you're right. The report's out and, you know, with, with most of it unredacted. So in that substantive way, yeah. But to me, the broader question is, and uh, this just general attitude that, well, uh, Congress is this sort of lesser branch that we as the executive branch can sort of ignore with impunity or try to dictate terms to. And that's just not how the system's set up. So, all right, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the other side of this and, and argue that I think there's also something to be said. Um, because in a lot of these, these contests, these, these uh, inner, inner branch shoving contest, right? It doesn't come down to a legal determination. Courts are very reluctant to ever get into that. They say, look, this is a political thing. And, and, you know, the remedy is, is eventually at at the ballot box. Uh, my sense is that, that Barr is pushing back on this saying, uh, look, no, I'll, I'll appear, but I'm not going to jump through your silly hoops. And I would point to, look, I mean, the, the requirement that, uh, uh, Chairman Nadler has also said that he's demanding the unredacted uh, report. Um, and I think when we talked about this a couple weeks ago, there's plainly stuff in there that Barr cannot legally provide. And right. Nadler knows that. Yeah. And that is that is a completely frivolous demand. It's a frivolous attack on on Barr's character. And I'm going to I'm going to put on my partisan hat and um, probably everyone will be angry and inflamed. But um, this is this is an attempt to smear Bill Barr uh, as his other investigation continues as to how this um, uh, dossier came about and how the Justice Department and apparently now intelligence efforts overseas um, were geared uh, against the the Trump campaign. Um, and and I think this is this is not a conspiracy theory at this point, um, but. Uh, it sure sounds uh, if, that way. You, well, and let me let me also point it this way. I mean, so much of to me looking at, at politics is look at not what people say, but what they do. Um, the the Senate uh, Democrats really pretty much had free reign in questioning Barr, right? I don't think there was any time where the chairman reined them in and said, "I'm not going to let you answer or you know ask that question and so forth." And it went on for five hours. Um, yeah, but so let, I mean, well, I would, let me respond to that because I think this. This comes to, and this is something I also mentioned on on the Facebook group this week. The you know the issue of of the format, right? I mean the the standard yeah. format, and, and maybe you and I have some common ground on this. I don't know, but this standard format of these five minute back and forth segments, uh, one party the other party, that's a horrible way to get at the truth of anything. I mean that's not the way you would sure. question somebody if you wanted to dig deeply and really get some information and and you know 
follow up and that sort of thing. And so, and again, this is just standard practice. So this isn't really a partisan issue. This is, well, what's the point of congressional hearings? For the most part, I would argue, the point is partisan posturing. And that's- I agreed, 100%. You know, and, and so I think in this sense, you can make a good substantive case for changing that approach, although there are clear political reasons why you have that approach because both parties want the chance to do that. And they don't necessarily think anything, anything worthwhile is go- anything big is going to come out of that, except for some sort of soundbite, basically. And so, I think on that deeper level, you and I agree that a lot of this is political theater and it's on a the show, yeah. yeah. And on the substance, there's not a lot necessarily here. Now you mentioned, and, and I guess that's that's sort of my point is on the substance, what is there to to find out or discover. Yeah, I don't think there's a whole lot. I don't think that there's going to be a whole lot to discover from from Barr specifically because he's a smart guy and he's not, you know, he's very much not like Donald Trump and he's not going right. to let careless things slip. He's going to be very careful in his answers. He chooses his words very carefully to make a certain impact. He understands how that works. I mean, you know, the guy's been, he hasn't been attorney general general twice for nothing. And so when he exactly. uses a word like, for instance, spying, he knows the impact that that's going to have, you know? So he's a, he's a partisan hack, but he's a smart, he's a very smart partisan hack. And so, you know, now if you could get President Trump there for half an hour of some intensive questioning, now there you might be, there might be some interesting things that would come out, but not All right, with, which, but which not that with brings me back to, to, to my point, which was, this is why you shouldn't let me run the show. Um, because, <laughs> um, again, this is Socratic sort of sort of uh, dialogue. If if they don't expect to get any actual information out of Barr, there is no good no there no real uh, information as to why did the summary say this instead of that, um, because all this information is is out in front. They know they're not going to get the redactions because they know it's illegal. Uh, they know Barr cannot provide it to them by law, and he said that. And he said, "Look, if you want to, you can go ask the judge." Um, then, then why go through this exercise if not to smear him? Well, I, I mean, it's. It, I, I think there's a couple ways of looking at it. It's not necessarily smearing him, but it's certainly a big part of it is scoring political points. Obviously, you know, and if you want to kind of use the language of of smearing, and, and again, I think that. It's not so much. I don't see what I'm saying, for instance, as, as smearing bar. I'm just saying, well, I'm I'm calling maybe smear maybe smearing is a bad word. Maybe discrediting. Okay, yeah, and I think word. that I think let's use that word. I think that's a, a more neutral word, and I think it's fair because I think what he's doing, what he has been doing, is discreditable. And so sometimes you just call a spade a spade and say, well, okay, this is how this man is acting, and so there you go. Um, and I think what he has done has been. I wouldn't go so far as to say contemptible. And of course, there are all these ridiculous calls to resign and that sort of thing. And both sides do that. But I, I don't think he's acting the way I would expect uh, a kind of upright, honorable attorney general to act. And, and again, you know, I bring in Jeff Sessions and I hate to do this, but at least, you know, in, you know, in, in recusing himself from the investigation, Jeff Sessions acted, I believe, as an upright and honorable attorney general, which totally pissed off Donald Trump. And then, of course, he had Whitaker, who was just an acting guy who couldn't do a whole lot necessarily. But now he's got his guy. His guy is willing to carry water for him. And I don't believe that should be the job of the attorney general. And so I'm willing to call that discreditable. 
Okay. I'm, I, again, I'm I'm still at a loss as to what water he's carrying, but we can well, we can talk about me, that some other time. But let me mention more on the substance. Uh, in his testimony to the House, I'm sorry, to the Senate. If I understand Barr's view correctly on this, in, in what in in the comments, his view his view seems to be that it's okay for the for a president to attempt to obstruct justice if the president believes he didn't do anything wrong. And I just found that to be a stunning legal theory saying, well, you know, I, I don't think I did anything wrong, so I can end this investigation. Um, and that, that just, I just found that to be staggering. And I found when I talk about what's discreditable, I think Barr knows that that is a bogus legal theory, but he's just throwing anything out there he possibly can to, to mm. protect the president. I, I, for sure. I, I don't, I don't agree that that's a bogus legal theory. Um, as it's stated, okay. I think it is. I think if if the if the idea is just that the president can, uh, but but we, we've talked about this before that the president would have absolutely statute absolute statutory authority to dismiss Mueller at any time, right? Yeah. Okay. I and see I what think you're it's, I think sure. it's a tough. I think it's a very tough argument to make that says the statute allows you to fire this guy at any time for any reason, uh, and then if you think about firing him. That's obstruction of justice. Well, except, yeah, that, I see that, what you're saying, would, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's the legal yeah. argument. I, I partially uh, agree it, with you, but I think you would probably agree that while while the president has the right to, I mean, these people serve at the pleasure of the president, also, it is possible for a president to obstruct justice. Now, we can't, it's yes, difficult. I, I, would, I would agree with you there, yeah. So it's difficult to get into the president's mind thank God, but any president's mind. But if we somehow knew, if we had some clear evidence that the president's reason for taking that action, firing whomever, was to obstruct justice, then that would not be difficult. The problem is legally demonstrating that. Yes? No, I I, I still... So you yes think no. that, I mean, I, okay. I think, again, I think there's, there's a difference between also what we're talking about with a, uh, for example, uh, if a president were to, there's an investigation underway, a president seeks to, say, coerce a witness uh, by providing that witness with a job at, let's say, uh, Revlon. Um, uh, that would that would I think amount to obstruction of justice. You're trying to corrupt a witness. You're trying to tamper with okay. testimony. So, if for instance, says, if if Donald Trump tells uh, tells um, again his his personal or his attorney to to lie about something to investigators, that would be obstruction of justice. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I think it would be. Yeah. Okay. Um, but if if you're going to say I I am choosing to end this uh, fire this guy who I'm statutorily entitled to fire i i don't think that that gets to be instruct obstruction so of justice. even if let me just let me let me give you a kind of a very kind of you know, bright line type of example i guess or extreme example so if donald trump say tweeted uh tweeted i don't want i don't want comey to investigate this anymore i think it's bogus i'm going to fire him that wouldn't be obstruction correct hmm, provided okay. provided that yeah that uh Trump himself is not the target, which he never was. Now, again, that's a place where courts have never really ruled. And I think you've, you've got some, some questions right. there. Of, you know, look, can, can, there be can there be obstruction of justice if the president can't be indicted? Right. Well, the president, I mean, that's there's a, no law saying the president can't be indicted. That's just a, uh, well, that's just there, a mean, Justice I think, Department, you know, policy. 
Well, there's no law that says the president can't be indicted. It's a policy because the Justice Department believes that if it went to court, well, first of all, it would be one of these things that's that's probably just disastrous for the nation sure, all around. Absolutely. Right? Um, but also, I think there's there's a policy of, of going to court that does that offend the uh, co-equal branches and is is the only you know there's there's a school of thought and I'm I'm one of the people who who adhere to it that your remedy uh, against a bad president is impeachment. And, and, and that I, is the sole yep, that is yep. the sole remedy that's provided in the Constitution. That is the only remedy provided in the Constitution. Absolutely, absolutely. No. Now, yeah, you know, there was one other thing I wanted to mention, Jay, is that you know the there's a lot of talk about uh, potentially holding Barr in contempt and so forth, and and I want to just kind of bring this up a little bit to say, you know, it's not this isn't incredibly uncommon. For instance, uh, uh, attorney generals are held in contempt all the time. Well, not all yes. the time, but. <laughs> But uh, uh, Janet Reno, who was attorney general under Bill Clinton, was held in contempt by uh, Republicans. And, and Eric Holder was held in contempt over, uh, that's Obama's attorney general, over the Fast and Furious documents. Uh, but, you know, what's interesting about this is there are you know, some people say, well, what happens when you're held in contempt? That sounds like it's a, a bad thing. And it seems to me that this is actually, from a tactical standpoint, is a smart strategy on the part of these attorney generals, and in this case, obviously, Barr, because it's very easy for them to hold out until after 2020. Because when 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 the Congress holds you in contempt, they have basically three options. Number one is they can direct the sergeant at arms to put you in jail, basically, and that's not going to happen. Which is the, not really going to happen. Yeah, no, yeah. that that's not a that's not a live option in that sense. The things that have to get a lot worse. But secondly. They can take the case to a U.S. attorney and ask the U.S. attorney to prosecute, and no U.S. attorney is going to prosecute the which would, attorney Which would general. then get forwarded up to Bill Barr's yeah, desk. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> option two is off. So the only other option is to get the federal courts to order an appearance or to turn over documents, that sort of thing. And that actually can happen, but it takes a long time. Like in Fast and Furious, it took yeah. that, that that case of contempt was because the scandal, not the movie. Yes, exactly. That Holder wasn't turning over some documents. And eventually the courts ruled that he needed to. But that was four years later. And at that point, it was, you know, so so this is a from a strategy standpoint, it makes sense because the contempt power, I won't say is is toothless, but it's not as it's not like when you're held in contempt of court, if like you or I went before a judge and there could be yes. some pretty significant penalties for that contempt of Congress is, uh, again, you can't just totally ignore it necessarily, but it's not nearly as serious as being held in contempt of uh, like a, a court, basically. Right. And and no, that's sort of exactly also the, the point, if, if you consider the Nadler uh, demand for the unredacted um, report, which, as I understand, there there is there is a, a manner they can see some of it almost unredacted that is it's available um, for review, but you have to go and sign right. in and and so forth. Uh, and no uh, no House Democrats have done that; they have not taken that opportunity. Um, they they would rather have the unredacted posted uh, online or something. Um, but no, that's exactly the thing. Of, of Barr would have the choice of being held in contempt of court or held, held in contempt of Congress, and he's wisely will, will choose held in contempt of Congress. Yeah. So all right, well, moving on because I and actually I had a lot more stuff to say on other stuff. But we'll we'll get to that some other time. Um, but to more a, a, a policy issue. Uh, the Trump administration has recently proposed tightening uh, regulations relating to asylum. Um, and what he's done is requested an extra uh, $5.4 billion um, to provide uh, things such as additional hearing officers, 
uh, to expedite the uh, proceedings, uh, and also his his limited access to work uh, permits uh, to folks who have either been uh, granted asylum or uh, granted a, a non-removal, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, say yeah. the, the asylum is still pending, but they're not going to be removed immediately. Um, it is, is also uh, proposed uh, uh, seeking fees for filing an asylum claim. Um, now, all of this was put together in a memo that went to the Justice Department, but as we said, uh, uh, Attorney General Barr has been otherwise occupied. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there hasn't been any any action on this. Um but this would all be something that the president would seek to do through his executive authority. Um, and and I'm, I'm wondering, because, you know, you will probably be of, of two minds on this, because on the one hand, um, I, I think you and I agree that the current asylum system is is pretty broken. Yeah. Um, uh, but also, I think both of us tend to be leery of uh, actions by executive order. Um so what what are your thoughts on on where this goes? And also, I, mean, I guess the other the other piece is, should this become uh, policy and be be enacted, it would almost certainly be challenged in the courts. And uh, then we're we're down that road again. Yeah. So well, I guess there are two parts. The first part is the uh, that four point five billion emergency request, and maybe we can get to that in a minute. But the I say five point four. Yeah, yeah, four point five. You know, I mean, yeah. what's a what's a, yeah, yeah, what's nine hundred million or so here or there, but. Uh, but, you know, the two separate things, I would say, but focusing on uh, the thing you mentioned, the executive uh, order. Now, part of that, of course, he ordered that all of these claims should be adjudicated in 180 days. Now, now that actually isn't a change from current law. He just basically said, hey, the law should be followed here. Right. But if you do the math on this, which I decided to do, if you have a backlog of 850,000 cases, and it's a little more than that, but let's just use that number, and you have around 400 immigration judges, that's, uh, that's 11.8 cases per day, every single day, including weekends and holidays, to get all of them cleared in 180 days. Now, obviously, that's totally impossible, right? And, and that, also, that also doesn't include the fact that we've got probably another 50,000 a month coming yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're pouring in. So, so yeah, that, that I think is you know, saying, hey, it would be nice if we could do this. Now, uh, the administration is trying to hire more immigration judges, and, and I give them credit for that. And of course, uh, Jeff Sessions did the same thing. Uh, uh, in, now, the president's latest budget, which he submitted in, I think it was uh, February or March, called for was $71.1 million to hire 100 more immigration judges and the staff to support them. But of course, even if that's passed, that wouldn't be enacted until October, basically. Yeah. And so it seems to me that what I would have liked to see just for the emergency. those judges that don't have to be confirmed. Well, or do yeah. they? No, do they? no, I don't, no, no I don't know. No, they're immigration judges. That's not part of judicial. Yeah. Judges. That's totally yeah, under the attorney general. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's a pretty streamlined process, basically. What I would have liked to have seen, I, I like the fact that in this emergency request that there was, you know, an understanding there's a lot of money needs to be set aside for humanitarian assistance. And most of that actually is for that because it costs, it turns out it costs a lot of money to house minors, particularly the adults. Yeah. They can kind of put them in very Spartan surroundings, but that doesn't work for the kids. And, you know, that gets very expensive. But I would have really have liked to have seen, because I think this is a big part of the reason why this is an emergency is, say, uh, an request, if they would have asked, say, for $320 million to double the number of immigration judges, which I think would have, that's around what it would have cost, I think that would have been 
much, that would have been something I think would have been really useful to do to kind of help break up that backlog. Because, you know, when you talked about the work permit thing, right? Not mm-hmm. allowing work permits. I, I get the reasoning behind that, right? Because saying, well, if you don't allow the work permits, then people are going to be less likely to come. But I don't think that's how it works. I think what's going to happen, and I'm fairly certain of what's going to happen, is then people come into the country and they need to work. They're waiting two, three years, yeah, they'll maybe. They'll work illegally. Exactly. Yeah. And so that pushes them underground and makes them even harder to you know, track within the system. That's exactly the kind of unintended consequence that we don't want. So I think it sounds good, but it doesn't really make um, a whole lot of sense. I'll also point out that it's kind of inconsistent in a way. You know, because there's no push on the other side. Yeah, I would like to see a call for mandatory 50-state e-verify uh, and mm-hmm. more inspections. And in fact, when you look at Trump, the latest Trump budget, it calls for an 8% cut to e-verify. So, uh, you know, I think that's kind of inconsistent, certainly. Uh, the other part of that you mentioned was imposing fees on asylum seekers. And again, I get the reasoning behind this because certainly the administration's claim, and I think it's a reasonable claim, is that people are claiming asylum and, you know, 70, 80 percent of them don't have legitimate claims under asylum law. That's not saying that the conditions in their country aren't countries aren't, you know, really bad, but it doesn't meet the legal qualification for asylum. But. By by imposing fees, of course, which which we should because <clears throat> we, we we throw this around and we don't always we don't always express it. But, yeah, the legal justification for asylum would be that you are being uh, persecuted for your uh, political, religious uh, uh, beliefs. Um, <clears throat> you are in, in danger. Yeah. Um, from from the regime, essentially. Yeah. And not that, you know, your government is horribly corrupt not and your life like, is yeah, awful, this, yeah. basically. And, yeah. you know, that's certainly the case. But. Maybe you'll agree with this. The problem, if you did that sort of uh, fee imposition across the board, is that catches up people who do have legitimate asylum claims. And you don't want to, I mean, the whole point of asylum law is to you know, help these people out who are in this danger. And so by making it more difficult for them, <clears throat> that, so that's, that's the tricky part Al- of it. Although I, I would point out there is, and I, because I, again, all we have is this memo. We don't really have sure. a you know, fleshed out policy. Um, but typically in most any sort of judicial proceeding where there's a fee required, there's also usually a procedure where you can get that fee waived or deferred. Right. Um, that so would be I, an important I think there part would, would probably yeah. be some discretion, uh, at some point to, to say, look, either, you know, they, they don't have the fee or they can be deferred, uh, for later payment or something like that. But again, that's this, you know, what this was, was just sort of a broad outline and wouldn't get into those details, but yeah. But I mean, w- would you agree with me that a, that a big part of the problem, maybe one of the biggest parts of the problem, is that we just can't clear this backlog quickly enough? Yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. So then you, you'd be in favor of trying to at least temporarily for the next whatever, you know, until we can clear this to, to beef up the immigration judge, uh, uh, you know, ranks. Yeah. Okay. I'd like to apply. <laughs> there you I mean, I, I mean, I figured, you know, for especially for if I could do like a part time, like a you know, November through March. Yeah. You know, part time because it would be somewhere nice and warm, right? I could, I'd go to Southern California or or, yeah. or Texas or something like that for six months out of the year and yeah. happily help uh, clear go. the backlog. Yeah. Well, and what do you think on on the the other point? I was wanting to get your thoughts on the e-verify side of it. You know, I'm I've kind of 
been beating the drum for this for a while, right. but I mean, no, and I, I'm actually, I think we, we talked about this maybe a year or so ago and, and I think I'm, I'm generally on board. I think E-Verify is, is, is a good thing. And I think, uh, government efforts to enforce, uh, uh, immigration law, uh, against businesses that, that, uh, benefit from illegal labor. Uh, I think that's entirely appropriate and, and we ought to have that. Yeah. Um, I think I, I think you and I differed maybe some sometimes on the efficacy of the E-Verify program and whether it ought to be um, uh, mandatory as, as a, a matter of, of, of federal law. Um, but I, I don't I don't in principle op- yeah. oppose it. So. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, we're we're in we're really largely in agreement on, yeah. on immigration here, which is which is nice every once in a while. So, you know, that, that must mean we're right. I mean, obviously, that, I, I know, would think so. so. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> All right. Well, what what do we have next, Jay? So we're turning to um, uh, a little further south uh, in uh, um, as as the show often continues to to go (laughs) south. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I turn to uh, Venezuela, events in in, uh, uh, Venezuela, uh, opposition leader, and I'm not sure whether we call him opposition leader. I call him president. Yeah, me too. Um, One one guy, Dio, um, uh, had called for the military uh, to defect essentially last week. Uh, the result was some some skirmishes here and there, uh, and and what was I, I don't know whether again whether you call it an attempted coup, attempted civil war, whatever. Um, but to ask Maduro, and there seemed to be for a time uh, discussions that looked like Maduro might be willing to step down and might be willing to leave, um, but he, he changed his mind. Uh, all which then pushes it back on the the U.S. Uh, as to what do we do about this? Um, now, U.S. officials have have stated that uh, all options are on the table. Um, uh, now, of course, that's that's something would, that you always say. Yeah, you don't it's a real standard sort of thing. Saying, well, yeah. some of the options are yeah, on the yeah, table. Yeah, because we're not going to do that. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, so. um, uh, but but there is there is sort of uh, and and Republicans I, I would say are are in uh, lockstep support behind the administration. Democrats less so. Uh, there's a bit of a, a schism there where you have some like. Uh, uh, Representative uh, Elon Omar, and I, I just have to this quote because uh, apparently immune to irony uh, is is claiming is, is supporting Maduro uh, on the basis that the legislature cannot seize power from the president. Um, that's Elon Omar on the legislature cannot seize power from the president. One more time, um, uh, uh, but uh, cooler heads like Joe Joe Biden uh, have have come out to say uh, that they support uh, Guaido as the constitutionally uh, elected, um, and when I say elected, elected by the legislature, um, uh, president of Venezuela, uh, as have, you know, the vast majority of, of the world, with the exception of the people that the usual suspects, uh, Russia, China, and Cuba. Um, so I, I guess this is, I mean, this this presents sort of a, a, a the first, you know, test of the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine in, in quite a while um, as to, to what what steps the U.S. ought to take here? Uh, so, Mike, where where do you fall on that? In that that continuum between um, uh, Elon Omar and, and Joe Biden? Well, I especially given our incredibly fraught history of intervention in Central and South America, I think that any sort of military action would be highly, highly inadvisable. Now, of course, that puts me in odds with John Bolton, who seems to never saw a war he didn't want to get involved in. And I guess in this way, it kind of puts me in line weirdly with Donald Trump, who's kind of, he likes the fact that, and Bolton is his national security advisor, um, long time nut, uh, just current national security <laughs> advisor, who uh, 
you know, uh, is very much, he likes his hawkishness, but doesn't actually want to get involved in wars. And I think in this case, maybe the president's instincts are, are correct and that this would be a bad idea. You know, we, we have the, there seems to be a fair amount of unified support in a lot of the, the, the country's leadership in, in the area that, uh, uh, that Maduro is, is not legitimate and, and where our approach seems to be, you know, uh, in line with what the other countries seem to agree makes sense. And so I think by getting militarily involved, that would just, we just kind of put ourselves in a really bad situation and getting involved in other people's, whether you want to call it civil war, but certainly internal ruling conflict that, that rarely ends well, you know? So I think we do what we can to try to provide humanitarian aid. I think another thing we can potentially do, and maybe it's quite possible we're doing this through back channels. We wouldn't necessarily be advertising it is to try to provide some sort of carrots to, you know, say, for instance, uh, uh, that if there is a new, more democratic regime that's actually in, in power, then we'd be willing to, uh, to, to commit significant resources to kind of help them sure. rebuild their democratic stract- structures, rule of law. I mean, because Venezuela has been a mess for, for a long time now. Uh, Zach, who was on the show a while back, would totally disagree with me. But really, since Chavez uh, took over, the place has kind of just gone downhill pretty significantly. And so this country needs a lot of help. And we are in a position to provide that. And I think they could use that help. And so that would be maybe a care. But, you know, it's a difficult situation, right, Jay? Because trying to convince these people to uh, leave power when they think they're going to get prosecuted as they should because you know for doing well, not so- prosecuted executed execute well yeah that, i mean i think that's you know <laughs> so it puts you in a difficult position because of course then when you do that then you're basically encouraging other people to say listen we can just take over this country and do awful things and then get a golden parachute you know isn't that a great deal so it's the same reason you don't negotiate with terrorists right so yeah. so so yeah and then there's the whole oil issue involved. Of course, you know, Venezuela has the world's largest proven reserves of, of oil, and that certainly factors into a lot of these decisions. So uh, it's a tough situation. I don't think we really have much we can do. You know, oftentimes in terms of foreign policy, we think, well, we should do something. And sometimes I think, well, the best thing to do is to maybe not do so much to kind of stand back and try to be supportive when we can to help people in need. But just let, yeah, sometimes you have to let these other countries work out their own problems and not get so directly involved. And I know well, John Bolton doesn't believe that, but I, but I well, do. Here's, 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 a, I mean, the way I look at it. And I, I think maybe sometimes you, um, I don't, I don't want to say you miss the nuances, Mike, because I, I know you're all about nuance, but, uh, <laughs> to me, I think maybe the, the Bolton, uh, Trump is, it, it, there's sort of a good cop, bad cop dynamic going on there. Yeah. Um, where, you know, I mean, if I'm the president, if I, again, John Bolton, you may not like him, but again, uh, like Bill Barr, he's somebody who's been around for quite a while. Oh yeah. Uh, he's in the national security, time, yeah. diplomatic, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, milieu. And, um, uh, look, he, he would choose his words wisely. He knows, he knows what he's, he's saying. So I think there, there may be a, um, you know, that sort of sense of, of, you know, you just don't know what we're going to do and all options are on the table and so forth. Uh, and part of that has to be geared towards preventing uh, either Cuban and or Russian uh, adventurism uh, in Venezuela, uh, because I think that's that's the the real significant risk we're we're looking at. Um, 
and I, I think you're you're correct in terms of listen, if this is a uh, internal uh, power dispute and uh, Venezuelans will eventually decide this to the extent they already haven't through their constitutional process. Uh, but all the other neighboring countries, most of the world uh, recognizes Guaido as the the uh, uh, legitimate leader. Um, that eventually Maduro will will uh, lose power and and will have some sort of retirement, uh, whether in Havana uh, or on the uh, the Ural Sea or something. But yeah. um, uh, so, but but what what do we do? What's what's the step if uh, the Cubans uh, or the Russians say we're going to send troops or military advisors to support uh, the Maduro military? Uh, because that's sort of a, a different animal there, right? I mean, that well, that is, we're getting into this Monroe Doctrine territory of, um, and yes then you and can no. say what you... I, I would say okay. yes and no in that, I, I see what you're saying, and I think it's a it's a you know, valid point, but at some point, if you see a, a hostile foreign power getting itself involved in a situation that's likely to just be disastrous, you just say, well, hey, Go ahead, brother, you know, <laughs> have at it, you know. And so sometimes the best thing to do is let them step in it. And because uh, this is, I mean, so. In, in what in what way would they step in it, though? I mean, here's the thing. If and and let's let's be blunt, uh, if if Maduro controls the military or sub, sub, significant portions of it, because a lot of the military is it finds itself in the same situation. Uh, if if. Uh, this isn't just an election of, uh, gosh, we don't, we'd rather this guy doesn't win. If they win, they likely face imprisonment or execution. Um, you know, it, it, so, so what do you do? I mean, if one side has all the guns and the other doesn't, um, well, I mean, having all the guns is that certainly helps you in the short term, but it doesn't matter how many guns Russia sends there. Uh, Venezuela's economy and political system is a complete disaster. That's not going to change the structural problems that are causing Venezuela to just be in the state that it's sure. in. And so right. if but, you, but I mean, the people with the people with the guns don't particularly care about that state. Right. But and if you don't have the guns, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. But I'm saying the people in the country obviously care about that state. And so if if we want, I mean, I guess you could if you're making a humanitarian case saying yeah. that, well, people are suffering and so therefore we should step in and that's pretty clearly never been the basis of our foreign policy, because if that's the case, then we need to be giving hundreds of billions of dollars to Africa uh, and uh, other well, I mean, parts if you of the look world. at, I mean, I think we, we did step in in Somalia. Uh, we stepped no, I in mean, in the Balkan uh, wars. We stepped in in Haiti. I mean, there are a lot of examples of, of humanitarian places we stepped in. And, and even if you wanted to be completely uh, uh, Machiavellian, sort of Kissingerian about this, uh, you would say, look, uh, even if not for humanitarian reasons, the the outflow of people uh, would tend to destabilize those other countries around it. And, you know, we're, we're talking about border problems. Um, well, that would be a, a, a whole other big one if you would have, you know, a lot of people seeking to flee Venezuela. Yeah, and, and, and certainly there are a lot of people seeking yeah. to flee, flee Venezuela. So, I mean, I, I'm not unsympathetic. To, to your view, but I guess I tend to, I guess I tend to, especially when it comes to Central and South America, to be much more inclined to, to be cautious of, of U.S. military involvement because we have overstepped so often at, for so long in this case. And I think it's, we've done much more harm than good in many instances. And Cuba would be just one of, one of many examples 
I would say, I think that I would argue that the fact that we have a communist regime in Cuba is the direct result of of decades of U.S. interference and uh, uh, unlawful activities in Cuba, you know, prior to the Castro regime. And we we made that happen. And I think we need to be very careful about not repeating those sort of mistakes. Mm. Well, I mean, OK, um, uh, I guess I guess my last or last last thought on on that is um, what uh, oh, I forgot my last thought. Um, Sometimes that happens, you know. I just talk yeah, through it, you know. Really good to say, and then I sort of, um, no, but uh, I mean, don't. Wouldn't you agree, though, that to some extent you, the U.S. Ha- has to be able to threaten? Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Military, you, you know, whether or not it's wise to eventually use it, and certainly it is uh, ought to be a last resort. Um, as uh, AOC uh, helpfully stated last week, uh, on, when she was asked about uh, the situation, she uh, uh, she responded, "Violence is horrible." Um, so, well, yeah, I mean, we would all agree that that yes, violence is horrible. Um, but you know, don't we need to send that signal to the Cubans and or the Russians uh, that that you know we stand ready uh, to sure. move if we need to? Sure, and, and I don't think you and I. I mean, we're, we're kind of focusing on our, our points of difference here, but I think it's more a question of, of degree here. And certainly I would I would have a real problem if if uh, uh, Russia or Cuba just sent in massive military force. And, you know, and so it's a question of how much are we willing to tolerate? But I, I think you would also agree that that. You know, there's just, we have to have us give a certain amount of of deference, and it's really easy. And this is maybe the the burking in me oh, coming. So you'd be out. okay with like a little bit of Russian? Well, yeah, support? absolutely. I think we need to be Russian Facebook to, posts in, in favor well, of Maduro. Well, we need to be judicious. Yeah, we need to be judicious in here. We can't just be jumping in into every internal battle everywhere that we see Russia jumping into as well. Is I guess what I'm saying. Okay. So a measured, measured response. Measured response. I'm a, I'm a big, but you know, and again, I, as I was saying, the kind of Berkey in me just says that we tend to jump into these things like, and, and there are these unanticipated consequences, right? And so whether it's this or whether it's like, well, you know, why don't we bring democracy to the Middle East? Oh, sure. What could go wrong? Let's try that. Right. And, right. and now we have a situation that's, you know, so far worse than what it was before. You know, anyway, another topic. Right. All right. Well, so I, I guess we'll we'll see because that will that will still be developing by the, yeah. by the time we we talk next. Uh, the last uh, story we we're going to bring up today. This was one you wanted. I would have I would have probably passed on this, but it is kind of fun because I get to talk about legal stuff. Uh, is that uh, Trump has uh, the or the Trump companies? Uh, I should be more specific. Um, have sued Deutsche Bank and oh my gosh, Capital One. Uh, in an effort to prevent them from responding to a a, uh, subpoena for various business records of the Trump organization. Um, So I'm going to, I'll ask you first, I mean, why, to to me, this story seems sort of a, it's kind of a garden variety, run of the mill sort of thing. Um, But what is, what does this mean to you? And, and, do you see this as significant or is it just kind of, well, to me, I think it's, it's not, the specific thing isn't necessarily that significant, but the larger strategy, I think, is is significant, or at least I think it's important to understand. Obviously, Donald Trump is no stranger to, to lawsuits on either 
either right. side of them, right? In fact, I just I just got a I just got a sent a a book called Plaintiff in Chief about uh, the history of Donald Trump's uh, lawsuits. Uh, maybe I'll have the author on uh, to talk about that. But but basically, from a strategic standpoint, I wanted to bring because it makes a lot of sense. And most legal experts on both sides of things seem to agree that there's really not much of a legal case here. That eventually. The courts are going to say, well, no, this is legitimate congressional oversight and these things have to be turned over. But if you understand what the Trump administration is playing for, this is a this is a perfectly, you know, intelligible and smart yeah. strategy. It's basically just saying, can we hold this off until after 2020? Well, almost certainly, yes. And so that's that's all they're really looking for. And and I think they're going to lose on this, and most legal experts think they're going to lose on this. But at that point, it's not going to matter, basically. And and also this or or the other thing is, you can you negotiate it? Uh, uh, yeah, some kind of a maybe. Yeah, sure, yeah. right. I don't think I don't think uh, Congress is going to be very. The House is going to be very interested in oh, doing that. Right. But there's also the possibility maybe they're thinking, hey, maybe. You know, the economy is going well. Things turn right in our direction. Maybe we take over the house again and then all this goes away. You know, so it's a smart strategy, I would say, from a legal standpoint. But also, this goes to my thinking that, you know, my theory that Donald Trump never expected to win the presidency. And he was, you know, completely, yeah. completely unprepared for all of this scrutiny that his that his crooked businesses would have, basically. And so now it's just, they, they, you know, they knew that you can you can stop this stuff for years. And so, you know, it's not really going to be a problem until probably 2021, 2022. And at that point, they can just say, well, what are you going to do? Impeach me? And at that point, I think, you know, I, I think if he gets reelected and I, at that point, I think Congress is not necessarily going to be all that interested in, in, in doing that, basically. Oh, OK, I think you're, you're mostly right on that, I think, oh, well, although I would I would I would say this. I mean, as um, look, I'll, I'll tell you in the last month, um, this has happened to me, say, three times. Uh, so not my records being, but, but it just in, in, in my job, this is a standard kind of thing that happens sure. in litigation is you will subpoena records from a third party. And, and for the most part, the person who is the first party, uh, or second party, depending on how you're, you're counting, um, does not have standing to object to a subpoena of, of the, of records that somebody else has. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is it is not uncommon for that party to jump in and say, well, hold on. In this case, we do have, you know, some some reason to object because these are confidential financial reports and uh, it would subject us to loss of, of uh, confidential business information, trade secrets, uh, yada, yada, yada. So we, we would move uh, for a, a, you know, what's called a protective order saying that the subpoena should not move forward um, uh, and and. Um, the banks should not have to turn over this this material. So, you know, I, I, to me, it, it's kind of pretty much run of the run of the mill type stuff. Um, and I think, regardless whether you were the president or not the president or anybody uh, in litigation, this is pretty much a standard move. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I so I, I don't see like it, it's not a um, to to. I'm trying to think some of the Democrats. So this is a completely, you know, out, outlandish, unprecedented step, you know, abusing the courts to try to. No, it's not. This is this is sort sure. of a standard thing that every every well, and, company yeah. 
and then, would do. Every litigant would do. Yeah, and that's a fair point. And obviously, you know, the reason why this hasn't come up in, in presidential context is that most presidents, well, release their, you know, a lot of their financial sure. history and and divest themselves and put things in blind trust. And Donald Trump decided he wasn't going to do that. And so he opened himself up to all of these things, basically, right. you know, I mean, he wants, he, he wanted to, he, I think he's was operating on the theory is like, well, now that I've won the presidency, this could be great for business. So, Hey, yeah. you know, you know, because again, it's the, the fundamental crookedness of this man, I would argue. But, uh, uh, one last point I wanted to make on this, Jay, is some people are talking about how this might play into, uh, how, what Democrats are thinking about impeachment. Of course, one of the charges against Nixon was contempt of Congress. And, you know, this is, this could play out to that point. Uh, and, you know, there's this conventional wisdom that if the Democrats move ahead with impeachment proceedings, even if they can get a majority in the House, which at this point I think is questionable, and certainly it won't, it won't pass, you know, it won't go, go through the Senate, he won't be convicted. But sure. there's this idea that even if they start the process, it will hurt Democrats. And they say, well, see, look at how it hurt Republicans when they did the same thing to Clinton. But if you look at that history, uh, the, you know, this, uh, the, the Clinton impeachment happened in December of 1998. What happened right after that? Well, the, the Republicans won the presidency in 2000. They only lost two House seats and they kept the majority and they only lost one Senate seat. So I guess what I'm saying is we should be maybe not quite so quick to assume that impeachment is going to be this deadly, awful thing for the Democrats. Uh, now, the situation here is a little different, obviously, because that impeachment happened after Clinton Second was reelected. Term. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So now yeah. if you're being really Machiavellian, then you say, well, then the thing to do is just uh, wait and see if Trump is reelected. And if he is, then go ahead and impeach him. Now, that would, you know, there were some issues with that. But, you know, uh, I just think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, we're not sure exactly how this would affect Democrat, you know, Democrats and this idea that it just really killed the Republicans is just simply, I think, a highly questionable idea. Well, uh, first of all, I'd say I'm, I'm glad you're recognizing that because that's sort of been a a, uh, a Democrat topic talking point for for two decades now that the impeachment of Bill Clinton was a horrible tactical mistake. And look at those stupid Republicans. Um, that said, I mean, I'm going to go back on on the record. I think I said this last November. Uh, the House Democrats uh, will impeach uh, President Trump. Okay, I am. I am no doubt. No doubt in my mind. I am willing to say that while there will definitely be some momentum for it, it's not going to get to that point. Uh, Pelosi is going to make sure that that doesn't happen because she sees it as a as a political loser. So we are both now on record, and hopefully, when it happens or doesn't happen, uh, someone will remind us, and one of us will be able to crow happily. If yes. we want to do that sort of thing. Not that we'd rub anyone. We, I wouldn't rub. I, I certainly won't rub your nose in it. I mean, you know, I'm used to being right. And I know you, you wouldn't do that either. <laughs> anyway, well, so that, that pretty much does it for this week, doesn't it, Jay? I think so. Yeah. You know, but before we do go, uh, one final thing, uh, you know, right now we're kind of in a transition phase with the politics guys, kind of our gawky teen years, maybe, I don't know, something like that. Um, We're trying to find a model that will allow us to keep the podcast going through the 2020 elections and, you know, I well, through long, Forever. long after that, you know, into a Hickenlooper second term, you know, is my thinking. But uh, now this isn't the start of a funding pitch, I promise. Uh, but a key part of every strategy we're considering involves growing our listener base. And uh, you may have heard we've been running a few ads in various places, but of course, ads don't come close to having the impact that your personal recommendation does. So 
If you could share this episode right now, or you know, maybe wait a minute until after I shut up with uh, friends and followers, nemesis, whatever, coworkers, on whatever social media networks you're on, and email, what what have you. That would not dark only, web. yeah, dark web. There you go. You know, that would be great. Uh, yeah, Reddit, whatever. It you know, it it really helps because you hear ads, we hear ads, and we're like, oh yeah, whatever. Someone's paying to say that, but if you tell people that you know that we're worth watch, watching, listening to. That's going to mean so much more, and we'd really appreciate it. Also, if you do that on Twitter, include our Twitter handle. That's at Politics Guys or Facebook Politics Guys page. We'll be able to see whatever message you include with your with your sharing of that. And I know, Jay, you know too. We have some very creative listeners. I'm betting people come up with some really interesting messages, and it might be a lot of fun to see those. Maybe even I don't know, read some of them uh, on the air in a future episode. So we would really appreciate if you could do that. All right, but that does it for this episode. Hey, if you want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. And there is our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We have some very interesting and pretty involved uh, discussions throughout the week on that. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. And if you do want to support the show financially, patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And if you do support the show, you get access to all kinds of interesting stuff, like, for instance, our supporters exclusive bonus show, which Jay and I are going to be recording right after we're done with this. This week, I think it's, uh, it's infrastructure and emoluments. That's always a word I have trouble with, Jay. I don't know why. It's one of those Same here. weird, weird things. Word. But uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about both of those. And again, that's, uh, that's one of the many possibilities that you can get if you are a Politics Guys uh, supporter. And, and to find out all about that, the very We've got levels and things, so it's all kinds of stuff. Just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and you can learn all about it. Thank you so much for your support. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show is produced by Jay Carson and Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you join us.